So today on Easter, we are kicking off a new teaching series. And if you're new to church, let me explain that for a minute. Churches oftentimes will take a series of weeks and teach on a certain topic. And so we call it series. That may be weird for you, but don't let it be. But just know that today we're kicking off a new one. So you're getting in uh, on the front page of it. And so we're glad you're here. But for the next several weeks, we're going to be in this series called Dangerous. And I know when you hear that word, for every person, it probably brings up different kinds of thoughts in your mind, none of which have anything to do with God, Jesus, church, or Easter. And so just hang on to that, because in a few minutes, we're going to dive deeper into this whole, what we mean by dangerous, and our hope is that today and over the next several weeks, that that word, dangerous, will come to mean something totally different for you. And so we'll get to all that in a minute. But first, I should go ahead and get this part out of the way. So when we decided to do this series called Dangerous, someone on our staff had the bright idea, unfortunately that someone was me, had the bright idea that it would be cool for each week of the series for us to film one of our staff members doing something dangerous. And because it was my bright idea, our staff said, well, that's a great idea, Pastor Steve. You should go first. And so we began talking, and that's fair, and we we started talking about what we should do, and everyone immediately, because our staff knows that I absolutely hate airplanes, and I hate flying. Actually, that's not true. I don't hate flying. I hate turbulence, and I hate dying. That's what I really hate. (laughs) But they know that I feel this way, and so all of them were like, done. You're jumping out of an airplane. Okay? So it's worth noting that I don't get on big commercial airplanes unless I'm medicated. If you think I'm making that up, go see my wife after this. I hate flying. I just hate it. It terrifies me. And so guess what I got to do this week? So before we go any further, watch this. Hey Steve, what are we uh, doing today? Well, so I've been told we're driving up to Denver and I'm going to jump out of an airplane. And uh, you love heights, right? I love heights just equal to how much I love the devil. So we are here. Steve, how are you feeling? You know what? It's it's not even the jumping out that's bothering me. I just don't like airplanes, and I don't want to get on this little plane right now. That's really what has my stomach turned upside down. Once they push me out of the plane, I'm pretty sure I'm going to be great or passed out, but I just don't want to get on this airplane. something a little bigger.
you're going out high. 18,500 feet. I'm about to punch you in the face. Steve, good morning. What's up? You tell me, man. I think we're about ready to jump out of this airplane over here. You know what? The jumping is not bothering me. I just don't like airplanes. Well, good thing you're only in it for half the trip. That's a great. Let's get on it and have thing. some fun, brother. Yeah, man. Yeah, buddy. Back on Earth, safe oh, man. This has been the best part. Hop up, talk to me here. Yeah, man, we're good. Now that I'm on the ground, we're good, bro. What was going through your brain and the free uh, fall? You know what? The uh, the free fall was just hard to breathe. That was that was the worst part. I thought I was going to pass out. <laughs> uh, once the parachute opened, much better. I love it, man. You did great out much there. Better. Give oh, me some gosh. skin. Thank you, bud. And maybe we'll see you back job. for round two. Uh, I doubt that. <laughs> have words for you. The uh, parachute ride down was awesome. The plane ride up was awful. Like awful. It was the bumpiest plane ride in the history of the world. So I think I said a bad word. But uh, I'm on the ground, alive, and I jumped out of an airplane. The question I have is, are you dangerous?
I'm so glad you guys enjoyed that. You know, before I, by the way, one of the things I was thinking as the video was playing, I forgot that they played ACDC as a part of that video, and I thought, I wonder how many churches in America played Thunderstruck in church this morning <laughs> on Easter. Um, before I went to do this, uh, I had so many people that some of them, I don't think they've ever even been skydiving, but they, they would say something like, dude, once you go you're going to love this, man. You're going to get the bug. You're going to get addicted. You're going to want to do it over and over again. And I'm here to tell you on Easter Sunday, those people are liars. (laughs) Because I never want to do that again for the rest of my life. I did tell my mother-in-law, she asked me, would you do it again? And I said, if they can figure out how to skydive without the airplane or the free fall, I'm in. If we can just start with the parachute, that was amazing. So if you can ever find that out, let me know and I'll go with you. Um, But anyway, nonetheless, bucket list, fall thousands of feet from the sky and live, check. I did it. I'm I'm so glad I did it. I'll never do it again. So back to our series. Uh, I, I know this dangerous thing may not be making sense, and I want you to hold on to that question that I said at the end of the video, are you dangerous? Because we're going to come back to that in a minute. But I want to start today by sharing some information that a lot of you in the room today are going to know because of your service to our country. But there's probably somebody in here today who's never heard what we're about to say. And, and I want you to really dial in on this because it's the foundation and the basis for this whole dangerous series for the next month. And so here's, here's, here it is. Our United States military has a series of alert levels that they use to protect our nation called DEFCON, or Defense Readiness Condition. And the levels look like this. I want to walk you through them for a second. And they go in reverse order. It might seem like five should be the highest or the the highest threat, but that's actually the lowest threat. And we're going to work our way all the way to DEFCON 1, which is the highest threat. And so it goes like this. DEFCON 5 is normal peacetime readiness, meaning there's no war, everything is good. DEFCON 4 is increased intelligence gathering and security measures because we might be at war or there might be a conflict somewhere. Um, Level 4, DEFCON 4 has been used off and on over the last seven years uh, or or more than seven years, several years that we've been in this um, war on terror. Then there's DEFCON 3. And this is where our armed forces readiness increase above normal levels. Our air force is ready to mobilize in 15 minutes. And you can see over to the right, that's only happened a handful of times in our nation's history. Then you go to DEFCON 2, which is high readiness. Our armed forces are ready to deploy in six hours. And only two times in the history of the United States has that happened. Once during the Cuban Missile Crisis, and then again in the original Gulf War during Operation Desert Storm. Only twice have we reached DEFCON 2. Then DEFCON 1 is maximum readiness. All forces are ready for combat. Nuclear war is either imminent or likely. And as you can see, we've never reached DEFCON 1 in our nation's history. And what I want you to notice about this chart and about these levels is that the the higher the threat, the more rare it is that we go on that alert level. And the reason for that is, is that our, our, our military doesn't take these DEFCON levels lightly. They're, they're in place to protect our nation, and they only go to increased readiness levels if there's a serious threat to our safety. 
And I know you may be thinking this morning, what in the heck does all that have to do with God, Easter, and and Jesus? And I'm glad you asked, so let me explain. Several years ago, 15 or 20 years ago, as a matter of fact, a pastor named Louis Giglio preached a a sermon on this exact topic, DEFCON. And as he explained these defense condition levels, he asked this question of people, are you dangerous? And what he was really saying as he asked that question is this, when, when Satan gets up in the morning, and I don't know if Satan really goes to sleep at night, but for the sake of our talk today, let's just go with it, okay? When Satan wakes up in the morning and thinks about you, is he worried? Are, are you a threat to what Satan is trying to accomplish? In, in other words, look at this. Are you, where are you, excuse me, where are you on Satan's DEFCON scale? So if if Satan, in his office in hell somewhere, has the same kind of scale that our United States military has, where he goes, you know what, most of the time there's no threat from these people on earth, because they say they love Jesus, but they don't really live it out. And so they're they're not really any threat, but every now and then, I have to increase my, my alert, the devil says, because people get closer to Jesus and then they start living like him and that's a threat to what I'm trying to do in this world and that question where are you on Satan's DEFCON scale it's a great question because there are multiple possibilities and so for the sake of our series we've designed and actually Giglio wrote out three DEFCON levels for Christians people who call themselves followers of Jesus and, and, and I'm going to share them with you, and, and for, the, for the, just the sake of time during this series, we're only going to have three instead of five, but here they are. For Christians, DEFCON 3 looks like this. Satan is not remotely worried about you, because you are no threat to his plans to discourage and destroy God's people. You're no threat. You talk a good game, you come to church... You might even volunteer at church sometimes or maybe every now and then you help your neighbor, but really it's just something you do. It's not who you are. And so he's not worried about you. DEFCON 2. You've grown in your walk with Christ to the point that now you occasionally show up on his radar as a blip on the screen. And everybody's seen a radar of some kind on a, on a you know, war movie or something where it's just blip, blip. And that's it. Like every now and then you get close enough to Jesus and and you trust him enough that you hand over fully the keys of your life to him that your life starts to make an impact on those around you and you become a threat. Even if it's momentary, there are these times where Satan goes, we got to keep our eye on that one because they're starting to get it, starting to understand what it is that Jesus died for. And then finally, DEFCON 1, the highest level of alert for Satan, goes like this. Satan and his legion of demons are on highest alert because you are making a daily, eternal impact on the lives of others for the glory of God. So for the next month or so, we're going we're gonna to take a look at people in Scripture, people in the Bible, who through their actions and their level of faith in God prove themselves to be a danger in the eyes of our enemy. And I want to take a minute just to remind us today, 
you only have one enemy. It's not your spouse or your boss or your kids or your parents or your co-workers or your neighbors. Satan wants you to think those are your enemies, but you only have one, and it's him. It's the devil. And so we thought, of course, what a better way to kick off this series on Easter Sunday than to talk about the most dangerous threat to the kingdom of hell of all time, and that is Jesus Christ. To understand the level of danger that Jesus is to what Satan wants to do in this world, the next logical question we need to answer is, what exactly is Satan's plan? What is, what is he trying to do? Like, if, if we're going to be a danger to that, then what is the plan? And so let's real briefly this morning look at some scripture that tells us what Satan is out to do. First John chapter 8, verse 44, the Bible says this, he has all, talking about Satan here, talking about the devil, he has always hated the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, it is consistent with his character because he is a liar and the father of lies. See, part of Satan's plan here on earth is to get you to believe things that aren't really true. Things like, you'll never measure up. You'll never be good enough. Or something like this, oh man, God will never forgive you now. He's, he's never going to, you're never going to get back on God's good side now. Or maybe he'll say something like this, you're damaged goods. How would God ever use or bless someone like you? Or maybe he says more practical things like, you're never going to get out of this debt. This marriage is never going to work. Your kids are never going to turn out right. Or maybe he's speaking to you and you go, I'm never going to get my act together. I'm never going to turn out right. And he's good at it. Have you noticed that? He's good at getting us to believe things that aren't really true. And the reason he's good at it is he's not just a liar. He's the father of lies. He invented lying. That's why he's so good at it. And one of his number one goals every morning before your feet hit the ground out of bed is to get you to think a different way than is actually true in your life. To get you to believe things about God that aren't true. To get you to think that God loves you less than He really does. Or that you're capable of less than you really are. He's a liar. Second one, 1 Peter 5.8. Some of you might be familiar with this one. The Bible says, and this is Peter, and he's writing again about the devil. So he says, stay alert. Watch out for your great enemy, the devil, because he prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. That word devour in 1 Peter 5.8 actually means to consume quickly and aggressively. And you need to know this morning, if nobody's ever told you this, Satan is not your friend. He hates you. And the reason he hates you is because you were created by a God that he hates and he knows that he can't get to God, so he comes after you. I was telling the earlier crowd this morning that a few years ago I had the opportunity to go to Africa. And while I was there, I, I had the amazing privilege of going on a safari. And we actually got to watch a pride of lions prowling and hunting a herd of wildebeest. And a couple of things interesting I noticed about how those lions hunted. Number one, they were patient. 
we were in the crater in Africa for less than four hours, but the whole time we were there, they stalked these wildebeest. They never took a break. They were waiting for the perfect opportunity to devour. And I'll tell you another thing I noticed about my trip to Africa and how lions hunt. They never attack an animal who's tightly in the herd. They always isolate them first. They wait for the animal to be wounded and kind of start drawing away from the rest of the herd. Then they're a sitting duck. Then they pounce and devour. And the lesson there for you today is some of you are in that season of life right now where you're pulling away from everybody that cares about you. Everything that's healthy in your life, Satan is saying, man, you don't need any of that. Those people are judging you. They don't don't really care about you. And what he's doing is he's trying to isolate you so he can attack. That's what he does. And then finally, a verse that we use around here a lot at the bridge, John 10.10 says this. Again, talking about Satan, and this time it's Jesus himself saying this. He says, the thief, Satan, comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. And again, what this passage is telling us is that Satan has no good whatsoever planned for your life. He wants to destroy your life. He wants to discourage you. He wants you to be depressed. He wants you to be bitter and angry. You know why he wants you to stay like that? Because he knows if he can trap you in bitterness and anger and depression and discouragement, then you're no threat. You're no danger. And that's why he works so hard at destroying everything good in this world. But it's actually the second part of this verse that I love and that I want to zoom in on for a second because it's actually our first clue to what makes Jesus dangerous. And and that second half of John 10.10 says, I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. The first thing you need to know about what makes Jesus dangerous today, Jesus is dangerous to Satan because he came to defeat death and give life. And if we stopped right there today, that sums up Easter. God, Jesus, and all of Christianity, for that matter, Jesus came to defeat death and give life. And and we're going to come back in a few minutes and really drive home that point. But right now I want to take some time to break down further this idea of what makes Jesus such a danger to Satan. And that's going to be important when we come back to the end today. We need to know why Jesus is so dangerous. So let's keep going. Jesus is dangerous because of the specific purpose of his mission on earth. And you might be thinking, wait, I thought we just read the purpose of his mission. More specifically than just defeating death and giving life. Exactly why did Jesus come? What, what did he come here for? Because if, if nobody's ever told you this, let me explain today that Jesus, before he came to earth, he was where he is today, and that's in heaven with his Father God. And he willfully left the comfort and glory of heaven to come here to earth. Why? 
What was he here to do? What was he trying to accomplish? And there's a story in the New Testament that I think draws the picture of why Jesus came to earth so clearly. And it's different. It's not a typical Easter passage of scripture, but I think after we get done, you're going to see why it fits so perfectly in the Easter story. It's in Luke chapter 19, and we're going to start in verse 1. And if you spent any time growing up in church, this will be familiar to you. The Bible says this, Now Jesus entered Jericho and made his way through the town. There was a man there named Zacchaeus. He was the chief tax collector in the region, and he'd become very rich. And just to read between the lines, the way he'd become rich is he was overtaxing his own people, his own ethnic group, his own family, his friends. He was overtaxing them. He was skimming some off the top for himself and giving the rest to the Romans. Okay, so let's keep reading. Verse 3 says, he tried to get a look at Jesus, but he was too short to see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed up a sycamore fig tree beside the road because he knew that Jesus was going to pass that way. When Jesus came by, he looked up at Zacchaeus and called him by name. Zacchaeus, he said, quick, come down here. I must be a guest in your home today. And I don't know about you guys, but every time I read that passage right there, all I can think of is... Zacchaeus was a wee little, do you know that? Wee little man, was he, everybody? never mind. So, let's keep reading. We, get, we gotta read the whole thing. Uh, I, I apologize for that today. Anyway, verse six, Zacchaeus quickly climbed down and he took Jesus to his house in great excitement and joy. So Zacchaeus is getting it. He's meeting Jesus and he gets it and he's excited, but not everybody's excited. Look at verse seven. The people were displeased. And the people that are being referred to here are church people. People that had their own idea of who God and Jesus should be, and they were missing the Messiah, Jesus Christ, right before their own very own eyes. He was there, and they were missing it. And so they were displeased, it says. He has gone to be the guest of a notorious sinner. How'd you like that to be how people described you? A notorious sinner sinner. Not occasional, not really good, but notorious sinner. That's how they describe Zacchaeus. And that's important because you need to know we're not talking about a good dude here. This guy was trash. This guy was the scum of the earth. In fact, to put it into perspective, and I'm not trying to make light of what I'm about to say, this is really how they felt in Jesus' day. People felt about tax collectors in Jesus' day the way you and I feel about terrorists today. They were the worst. And that's who Zacchaeus was. Keep reading. Meanwhile, Zacchaeus stood before the Lord and said, I will give half my wealth to the poor. And if I have cheated anyone on their taxes, I will give them back four times as much. Let me explain what's happening here. This guy's life is changing right here on the pages of this story. He's starting to think different. He's met Jesus for the first time and it's changing who he was. And and, and the reason... We know his life is changing is because he's changing the way he handles his money. And all of us know, you want to know what's really important to us? Look at how we spend our money. And this guy is saying, hey, I'll give half of my money to the poor. Can you imagine giving half of your income in a year and your assets and giving it away to the poor? That's a big step. And then he says, all those people that I've cheated, anybody that I've cheated on their taxes, I'll pay them back. But I won't just pay them back. I'm going to pay them back four times what I stole from them. 
That's a guy that's serious about making it right. And just a few verses earlier, this is one of the worst people in his community. What was different? Jesus. He met Jesus. So finally, verse 9, Jesus responded and says, Salvation, and that's a word that means new life. Salvation has come to this home today, for this man has shown himself to be a true son of Abraham. And in in this day, they would refer to people as a son of Abraham if it was someone who really got God and understood the things of God and followed the law of God. And, And that's what he's saying. This man is showing that he gets it. And then in verse 10, Jesus says a famous statement that really lets us know the purpose of his mission, why he left heaven and came here. And this is what he said, for the son of man came to seek and save those who are lost. And that's you and me, by the way, not just a bunch of people 2,000 years ago. He came to seek and save those who are lost. To, to put that in, in our terms today, The purpose of Jesus' mission on earth, the reason he came here to earth, is he came to help those who couldn't help themselves. Zacchaeus was as low as it gets. I mean, he was was looked down upon by everyone in his community. And I relate to Zacchaeus because there are a lot of times in my life where I feel like I just can't get out of my own way. Can you relate? That's who Jesus came for came for people who can't get out of their own way, who can't get their act together. He's in that business. And I know, because I've sat in chairs like this a lot in my life, and I've wondered, man, Jesus didn't come for me. He came for good people. Wrong. He came for the worst of people, and this story proves that. So Jesus came to help those who couldn't help themselves. And then look at this. Jesus also came to give life to those who were ready to give up on life. And I'm not trying to meddle this morning, but I'm just wondering. I bet in a crowd this large today, there's somebody in here that's like, man, is this even worth it? I mean, the pain and the frustration and the disappointment. Is it even worth it for me to keep on going? That's who Jesus came for, is people that think like that. In their lowest moments. That's why he came. And here's why Zacchaeus' story is so important and why it actually fits perfect into the, into the Easter story. It's because it's not just a story about some short guy that was stealing from his friends and family. It's a story about you and me. Zacchaeus' story is your story. And that's the beauty of the Bible and Scripture is that it's not just a historical book that was written to and about people that lived a long time ago. When you hear a story like this, he's talking about you. And so you could put your name in there. Jesus came because I can't help myself. Jesus came because sometimes I'm ready to give up on life. That's why he came. And here's what's amazing about it. No, nobody, including God, made Jesus leave heaven and come to earth. But what's crazy is that he did it willfully, knowing you. He, he completely and totally knows who you are. He knows your bad attitudes. He knows your evil thoughts. 
He knows your selfish actions. He knows everything about you. He knows more about you than you know. And he came anyway, knowing, and this, this is what's amazing, and I'm getting a little ahead of myself here, but he came not just to love us and do miracles, he came to give his life for you. No, knowing that you were going to turn your back on him over and over again, he loved you enough that he left the glory of heaven and came to earth for one purpose, to die in your place. So let's keep going. Jesus is dangerous because of how he accomplished his mission. And I want to set this up, and we're going to read a lot of verses here, but I think it's important for you to see it from God's word and not just from my mouth, but also because this passage of scripture that we're about to read details what it is that Jesus came here to do and how he accomplished his mission. So just to kind of set it up here, Jesus came to earth, he, he lived a, a, a full life, and he did so perfectly. He's the only person to live a perfect, sinful, sin, sinless life. He taught truth, he taught a new way of thinking and living, and he performed all these miracles. If you don't know much about Jesus, he did some amazing miracles. Now we find Jesus, and he's in this place called the Garden of Gethsemane, and he's praying. He's praying for two things. Number one, he's praying for you. But then he's also praying for himself because he knows what's about to happen. And the human part of Jesus is scared. He's, he's horrified because he knows what's about to happen to him. And there's this passage earlier in Matthew 27, actually late chapter 26, where Jesus actually says to God, his father, he he basically says, Dad, if there's another way, let's do that. Because I love these people, but I don't want to do this. And then he says some of the best words in all of Scripture. He says, but you know what? Not not what I want, but your will be done. And if if to save these people and give them a brand new life, then I got to do what I got to do, I'll do it. So he gets arrested, and he's taken to town, and and they make fun of him, and they they beat him and spit on him and all this kind of stuff, and we're going to pick it up as he's headed to his death. So Matthew chapter 27, starting in verse 27, you can just watch along on the screens and read with me. This is an amazing story, and remember, everything we're about to read is for you. The Bible says this, Some of the governor's soldiers took Jesus into their headquarters and called out their entire regiment, all the guys. They brought him out to watch. And they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. And they wove thorn thorn branches into a crown and put it on his head. And we're not talking about little thorns that you would get when you're working with your rose bush. We're talking about three to four inch thorns that were so strong and 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 by the way they didn't set it on his head they forced it down over his head and some theologians and even medical doctors believe that these types of thorns that were put on Jesus head are so strong if they were really pushed with that force from another human they could actually penetrate the skull keep reading Then they handed him a reed stick in his right hand as a scepter. Then they knelt before him in mockery and taunted, Hail, King of the Jews! And they spit on him and grabbed the stick and struck him on the head with it. And when they were finally tired of mocking him, they took off the robe and put his own clothes back on. Then they led him away to be crucified. 
And we'll talk about that in a second. Verse 32, along the way they came across a man named Simon who was from Cyrene. And the soldiers forced him to carry Jesus' cross. And there's all kinds of symbolism there, but what we need to know today is the reason that this guy had to carry Jesus' wooden cross for him for a while is because the human Jesus had nothing left in the tank. He was too weak. All that he had already been through, and we're not even reading all of it today, had left him so weak that he couldn't even carry the cross that he was going to die on, so this guy had to do it for him. Verse 33, and they went out to a place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull. Today we know it as Calvary. The soldiers gave Jesus wine mixed with a bitter gall, but when he tasted it, he refused to drink it. After they nailed him to the cross, and this is one of the biggest misconceptions in Christianity, is that we're not talking about a little household nail. We're not talking about a roofing nail here. Think railroad spike. And a lot of the pictures and the images that were taught as a children, they'll say stuff like this, look at his nail-scarred hands. And it kind of gives you the idea that they drove these nails or these railroad spikes into his hand, but that's not true. Because they knew the people that would crucify, the Romans that would crucify people back then, they knew that if they put the nail, the spike, actually in his hand, that all this cartridge in your upper hand is too weak to hold your body weight. And when you got too tired to hold yourself up on the cross, it would literally just rip through your skin and all the cartilage and you would just fall off the cross and would defeat the purpose of torturing you. So they would actually take these railroad spikes and put it between the two bones in your wrist so that those bones plus the joint of your hand would actually hold your weight while you're up there and you would suffer even longer instead of falling off. So after they nailed him to the cross, the soldiers gambled for his clothes by throwing dice. Then they sat around and kept guard as he hung there on the cross. A sign was fastened above Jesus' head announcing the charge against him and it read, This is Jesus, King of the Jews. Two revolutionaries or criminals were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. The people passing by shouted abuse at Jesus, shaking their heads in mockery. They said things like this, look at you now. You said you were going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Well, if you are the Son of God, save yourself and come down from the cross. The leading priests, teachers of religious law and elders also mocked Jesus. Well, he saved others, but he can't even save himself. So he, so he is the king of Israel, is he? Let him come down from the cross right now, and then we'll believe in him. He trusted God, so let God rescue him now if he wants him. Because he did say, after all, I am the son of God. And it says, even the two criminals on either side of him mocked him that day in the same way. Verse 45. This is the good part. Good for us. At noon, darkness fell across the whole land until three o'clock. And at about three o'clock, Jesus called out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which actually means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And a lot of people have used this statement over the history of humanity to point at God and go, aha, we knew God was a cruel, unloving God because look, he turned his back on his own son. And it's not what's happening here. When Jesus yells out this phrase, 
saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What's actually taking place there is that all the sins of every human being who has ever lived, is alive today, or will ever live, not even born yet, all the sins, every sin, every person has ever committed fell on Jesus Christ at that moment. He became our sin. And because He was sin, and God is perfect, God couldn't look at our sin, He had to look away. And there's even more symbolism to this passage, but here's what we need to know for the talk we're having today. Is that statement, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? If you're ever in one of those moments where you feel like everybody in your world has turned their back on you or forgotten you, just remember, Jesus knows what that feels like. Some of the bystanders misunderstood and thought he was calling out for the prophet Elijah. So one of them ran over and filled a sponge with sour wine, holding it up to him on a reed stick so he could drink. But the rest of the crowd there said, wait, let's let's just see if Elijah comes to save him. And then verse 50. It's hard for me to read these words without getting emotional. Because my faith... It's not just something I believe, it's who I am. And I don't have faith without this statement. It says, then Jesus shouted out again and released his spirit, meaning he died. And what he shouted out that second time are three words that make Easter possible today. He shouted, it is finished. And what he was finishing was paying the debt that you and I owe. He was paying for a crime that he didn't commit. But right as he died, he said, it's finished. Please don't miss this today. Whether you come here all the time, or you came with a friend, or you lost a bet, I don't know why you're here. Don't miss this. Everything we just read, Jesus did for you you like he did that for you it's that personal he didn't just do it for all mankind in general he thought of you and i know you may be sitting here thinking today how's that even possible i don't know but i know it's true and i believe with all my heart if jesus wanted to he could have done an i dream of genie and gotten off that cross and kicked Siri's tail that day and I, I hope when I get to heaven there's like a highlight reel of alternate endings you know where he did jump down and just whoop butt for a minute because that would have been awesome but he didn't and what kept him on the cross is you that's why he stayed that's why he went through with it he had nothing else to gain it's crazy Here's something else to remember. I'm kind of laying the plane here. Bad pun, sorry. Jesus wasn't just a substitute for us on the cross. In other words, this wasn't just one of those, I love you so much that I'm going to come out of heaven, come down to earth, and die for your sins so you don't have to pay for them kind of thing. It wasn't just that. Because if, if that's all Jesus did... If all he did was die on the cross for us, then he's just another radical Jew who said some really crazy things, did some cool tricks, and then died. End of story. 
another Jewish revolution failed. That's all it would have been. And it was so much more than that. Fortunately, when Jesus says, it is finished, it's not the end of the story. Next chapter over, actually just a couple of verses later, we kind of end with this. Matthew 28 tells the rest of the story, and it says this. Early on that Sunday morning, as the new day was dawning, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went out to visit the tomb. I always feel bad for the other Mary. You know, like, if, if I'm going to make the Bible, I want my whole name. You know, like, the other Mary. Poor girl. Anyway, sorry. ADD. Suddenly, there was a great earthquake. For an angel of the Lord came down from heaven, rolled aside the stone. They were worried about people that were following Jesus, stealing his body. So they literally put this gigantic boulder in front of the, the, the tomb. A boulder that took several very strong men to, to move, right? And so it says, the Bible is telling us that an angel came down and moved it aside and actually sat on it. I think that's like in your face. You know, he didn't just move it, then he sat on it. You know, it's, kind of, it's amazing. I just love that little sarcasm there. It says, His face shone like lightning, and his clothing was white as snow. And the guards shook with fear when they saw him, and they fell into a dead faint. You think? I know I'm passed out at that point. Then the angel spoke to the women and said, Don't be afraid. I know you're here looking for Jesus, who is crucified. He isn't here. And the three greatest words for every Christian in this world. He is risen. He's not dead anymore. He's risen from the dead. Look, just as he said would happen. Come see where his body was lying. You know what separates Jesus from other religious figures like Muhammad or Buddha or some of those guys? is that Jesus didn't just come to earth, do cool things, teach wise things, and then die. Actually, he didn't even just predict his own resurrection because other people have predicted that. David Koresh, he actually did it. He did what he said he was going to do. He came back to life on the third day. He didn't just promise eternal life and then die on the cross, close the curtain, end of story. He finished the job. So what I want you to know this morning is that if Jesus had done everything else we talked about, like, it's awesome that he would leave heaven and come to earth. Just stop right there. It's awesome that he would do that because he didn't have to. I heard a, a pastor a long time ago compare it to us humans becoming an ant. Like, that's a big loss, right? Like, nothing against ants, but like, That's not the greatest life. He didn't just come to live a perfect life, and that would have been awesome. He didn't just come to forgive you, and I love that part because I need a lot of forgiveness. He didn't even just come to die in our place. If he had done all of that and then just did what dead people do, which is stay dead, there is no Easter story. There's no movement called Christianity. And we wouldn't be sitting here this morning worshiping God like we do because he would just be another radical person with a really cool story. 
here's the reason we're here today. Jesus is dangerous because he didn't stay dead. And I can't say that without smiling. He's not dead. When Jesus raised from the dead, that's what made it possible for you and I to have a new life. And if you've been around the Bridge Fellowship very often, you know that my old life, the person I was before Jesus Christ, is a lot like Zacchaeus. And it's the resurrection that made this new life possible. And while it's not perfect, it's completely opposite of who I used to be. And the only explanation I have for you is Jesus Christ. Here's something to hang on to as we close today. Remember in the beginning, we asked that question. In fact, I asked it as I walked off from hitting the ground after jumping out of the plane. I said, are you dangerous? It's really not a fair question because the answer is no. On your own, you are no danger to Satan. He's not the least bit worried about you. It is only when Christ lives in you that you become dangerous. So maybe you're sitting here today and you've kind of heard this and you're thinking, okay, so maybe I'm curious. What if I'm interested in Jesus? And and the way we say it around here is handing over the keys of your life to him, trusting him with every area of your life. I've been trying to do life my way, God, and it's not working, so I hand you the keys. I want you to be the boss. I want to live your way for the rest of my life. Let's just say I'm interested. How do you even do that? And that is the greatest question in human history, and it's actually got a really simple answer, and it goes like this. To receive Jesus into your life and to get a do-over, which is what the resurrection did, is, is give you and I a fresh start, a clean slate. To get that for your life, all you got to do is reach out and accept the gift that's been offered to you. It's actually the sweetest, most lopsided deal in the history of the world because it goes like this. You hand in your selfish, worn-out, bitter life. You give that one to Jesus. And he gives you a brand new life in return full of hope, peace, joy, purpose. What a deal. And all you got to do is ask for it. It's that simple. You can literally say a prayer to yourself. You don't need anybody else to pray for you. You just talk to God like your best friend because that's what he wants to be. And you say, I get it now. I've been trying to do this my way and I've heard about you all my life and I just thought it was some fairy tale but I realized you did all that for me. I want what you're offering, Jesus. You want to be dangerous? Then make today the day that you hand over the keys of your life to Jesus Christ. Make today the day that you trade in your worn out life for a life of hope, peace, joy, and purpose. Make today the day that somewhere in Satan's office an alarm is going off and he thinks about you and he has to say, "Uh uh-oh. Another life changed. Make today that day. When 
Jesus hands you a brand new life. Let's pray together. saying this as preacher talk I'm I'm offering you this as a satisfied customer if you're here today and you've heard this and as we sat here you thought to yourself today's my day please don't leave this place today without telling somebody I want to meet you I'm going to be out in the breezeway today as we get done I'd love to meet you come tell me man I handed over the keys today I would would so rejoice with you but just tell somebody because the last thing you want to do is try to walk this Christian life by yourself find somebody in a blue t-shirt today and say hey I just wanted to tell somebody today I handed over the keys and I promise you they'll they'll be happy with you too after I pray we're going to stand and sing one more song and This song is kind of a declaration or an anthem of everything we've talked about today. And so after I pray and we stand to sing, I hope that you'll sing it with all of your might. But even if you don't feel comfortable doing that, I hope that you'll let the words flow over you and that you'll hear what it means to believe in Jesus Christ. God, thank you for Easter. Thank you for loving us enough to come, to live, to die, and then to defeat death by raising again. You are the reason we're here today. You're the reason that we have hope when difficult things happen in our lives. You're the reason that we have the ability to have a positive impact on the lives of other people. We can't do any of that on our own comes from you, Jesus. So thank you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.